It's inspiring, isn't it? To see someone who takes life's circumstances and stares them right in the face with a totally different attitude. You see, this is the desire Peter has as he walks into this scenario of a church suffering under Caesar Nero. They had been attacked. They have been made vulnerable. They have been fearful, even shaken. Caesar Nero was building coliseums like Circus Maximus to kill Christians in for sport. He was hanging them in the streets. He was blaming them for burning down buildings that he actually was the one burning down, claiming they must be cannibalistic because of their communion practices and things like this. And so the church that that Peter is writing to is in a vulnerable, confused, fearful, and shaken state. They're going through suffering that is undeserved. It's just coming at them even through false accusation. And into that world, this fisherman that Jesus called, writes Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of the Father, remember this last week, in the sanctification of the Spirit and in the obedience of Jesus Christ, according to the Trinity, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. What? Peter, shouldn't it be like, all right, this is how you want to hide. Okay, this is where you want to scream. You need to say this. No, he says, I got grace and I got peace for you. Oh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope. Peter, are you missing something? Yeah, we have this living hope. Oh, it's based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. It's coming for us. It's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded by the salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter. Did you hear they're going through suffering and you're all like, woohoo, we got this hope. We aren't staying. We're moving on. It's as if he refuses to allow circumstances to dictate his mindset. Isn't it amazing? When we choose to focus on what God has done for us and when we choose to focus on changing our attitudes, our behavior is totally different. We, we joke, and our church knows this one. If you're newer to our church, you'll, you'll hear this motto often. Um, when your kids are going through a time, like, oh, do we have to go to church? Okay, I said it too, okay? And, and um, our, we've heard it from our own children, okay? Do we have to go to church? We simply respond with, you know what? No, we don't have to go to church. We get to go to church. We get to experience church. We get to be encouraged by the word. We get to be in here. And isn't it amazing? We, we, we only spend like an hour, 15, hour, 20 minutes here. And even that sometimes we're like, it's getting a little long. Like heaven forbid we give the God of the universe an hour of our week, right? Because we're so busy. When we desperately need this, we don't have to be here. We get to be here. In fact, we need to be here because it's here we hear about the living hope we have. And if you walk outside this door, if you turn on your TV, if you check out social media, you will see that you have a hope others don't. And so, because of that, Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice. You, you 
greatly rejoice. You're like, why did you do that, Chris? That was, that was weird. <laughs> I'll tell you why. I just acted out biblical interpretation. What? Yeah. Walk into any biblical hermeneutics class in seminary, and they'll tell you part of deciphering scripture is looking at what words mean in their original transcripts and languages. So this is 1 Peter, so it's New Testament. Therefore, it's been translated into English from Greek. So, so the Greek carries the idea of agaleo, which means much, and halamai, jumping. In this, you greatly reach, I'm not gonna do much jumping, because I need to preach the sermon. But I just acted out interpretation. What? Peter goes, okay, based on the hope you've got, I know, I know, I know Nero hung that guy. It is horrible, but seriously, rejoice. What? Are, are you, Peter, you've literally lost your mind. I mean, this is a paradox. This doesn't work. But Peter says, believers, I get what you're going through, but I want you to live with remarkable joy. It's, it's remarkable. Despite the trials you're going to face, despite the tests you're going to go through, and despite the suffering that will come your way, I want you to have remarkable joy. Now, the American gospel, which is not the Bible, the American gospel says your whole life is meant to do one thing, bring you happiness. So, you got to be happy. I mean, doesn't I mean, doesn't God want you to be happy? Right? We even hear that. I mean, God wants me to be happy. I mean, life's about happiness. Here's the, here's the problem though with happiness. It's based on something. It's based on where we get the actual word, right? Happiness is based on happenings, right? So if your happenings stink, how can you have happiness? because happiness is based on circumstantial things. And if your circumstances go south and your gospel is everything is supposed to be happy, then you start saying things like, I don't know if I wanna follow a God who would do that. And you start saying things like, you know, if there's gonna be suffering, I mean, he calls himself a loving God, how comes that? Because you have this theology you bring into scripture that is not a scriptural theology, it's a theology maybe you've created in saying, I'm supposed to be happy. But, but, but what if the goal that God has for his kids is not to be happy, although he loves when we're happy, but it's to be, wanna take a guess? holy would it change your perspective and just changing the word would it change your my marriage is supposed to make me happy what if your marriage is supposed to make you holy that means holiness or being set apart or becoming more like Christ that means in your marriage you may have trials, tests and sufferings but you know that's part of it because God's goal is not just to make me happy. He loves it. He's going to take care of that one day in glory, okay? But 
right now, it's holiness. And if you don't understand that, you look at trials, tests, and sufferings as cruel and mean and sad and wrong, and it can shipwreck your faith. But, but when you have a fresh perspective and you go, maybe my job is not to make me happy because it's not, okay. Maybe my job, God put me there to make me holy, which means it's going to include some things that I don't want. And when we begin to look at life that way, we begin to look at life through remarkable, not happiness, but joy. Because happiness is based on our happenings. Joy is based on, ready? Perspective. And if you don't have the correct perspective, Peter knows this, you'll never be able to navigate trials, tests, and sufferings. You can't. And so Peter says, I want to speak into this today. So if anybody here has ever gone through a trial, a test where they just feel like, man, it's just like one thing after another or sufferings, this is your day. We're dedicating this message to this. And don't check out if you're not because you might have a friend who is. And I want to give us some, some theology of this and I'm going to take some risks today. This is like heavy level stuff. Like this is like, um, like this is the class in seminary that even seminary students don't want to take. This is basically what we're going to give out today, a little bit of the theology of suffering, okay? And how it plays into God's overall plan. And somehow, God turned a fisherman into one of the greatest theologians ever. And we're going to track with Peter as he shares about this remarkable joy. So Lord, would you please today keep us focused, keep us alert, and keep us excited as Peter is about this joy we can have despite all the garbage that we might be dealing with. Let that speak to somebody today. That you can help them see it differently. Use Peter to do it, Lord, in your name. Amen. All right, Peter, in this you greatly rejoice. Why? Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, now let's get real focused on this word trials. If you got your journal, let's get real focused on that word trials. Because we got to make sure we understand what trials are. We can't come into this with elementary thinking. Trials are not consequences. Trials come because of something we haven't necessarily deserved. And this word here in its original language carries the idea not of all oh, temptations or inner struggle within me. It actually comes from a word that means little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by, ready, undeserved sufferings. Isn't it like the devil when you suffer to go, I bet you, this is because you didn't do this. Doesn't he love to do that when you go through a struggle? It's probably because God has given up on me. Like, doesn't he love, doesn't the enemy love to whisper things in that are contrary to the knowledge of God, of scripture? And, and, and these are trials, Peter's saying, I want to talk about those undeserved sufferings you're going through, church, under the legal empire of Nero. But we got to make sure we don't confuse trials with consequences. Put them on either side of the road. See, I want us to remember, a trial is an undeserved suffering. It isn't something you did. It came because you live in a sin-cursed earth. You live in an earth where people will hurt you. People will fail you. You will fail people. You will hurt people. Sin, Satan, and suffering will be a part of your life. And so you're going to experience trials that really outside of your control that come into your life. But then... 
there's also something called consequences. These are struggles you're going through that you've brought on yourself. You know this. Like, let's just go to our diets for a minute. <laughs> Man, I've had a terrible night with heartburn. Did you not order 20 wings from Buffalo Wild Wings? So, they were wonderful. Well, well you're suffer- you kind of brought that on. How could a loving God give me heartburn? Um, you know, <laughs> you ordered 20, right? See, consequences we brought on ourselves. So, so, so we, we got to know that. We got to know this. When we go through trials, Peter says, I want you to do this. I want you to rejoice and learn from them. Rejoice and learn. Consequences, I want you to do this. I want you to confess and turn. All right? When you're going through a trial, I got to rejoice. God's going to use this. I got to change my perspective. Peter's going to show me how today, I pray. And I got to learn from it. When I go through a confidence, I've got that. Forgive me, Lord, for doing that. I have brought this on by a decision. I left your guardrails. See, when God gives us guardrails and we steer off the road, when he gives us guardrails on how we're supposed to talk and we choose slander, you're going to have consequences. When he gives us guardrails for marriage and you choose to go a different path, you are going to have consequences. When you are told to trust, but you choose anxiety and worry, you are going to have consequences for that. Peter goes, that's not where we're at today. That's a great sermon, but that's not today. We're talking about trials. We're talking about undeserved sufferings. And he says this now, let's just pack some truth into this. In this now, you greatly rejoice when you deal with undeserved sufferings. And I learned something about trials from just this verse. Do you see them? Look for the four things we learned from Peter. Watch this. Trials, trials, undeserved sufferings are for a little while. Look, look. If necessary, been grieved and they're various. So I just learned something from Peter about trials. Maybe I never knew. What? They're for a season. They come and they go. They're necessary. God has a purpose for them. They're not just accidental. They're used for something. They're grieving. So Peter, thank you, because I'm thinking you are like this sadistic person to go, hey, my loved one passed away. All right. Like, really? Is that what we're looking for? No. There, in fact, he says, being grieved, it means to be heavily distressed. God knows that trials, Peter knows that trials are very sad and very, isn't that good to know? And he also says they're various. There are all sorts of forms. You experience a trial here or there. Some trials are different than other trials. Some trials last a long time. Some don't so much. Some we can clearly see God in it. Some we struggle to see God in it. They're various. But I learned something about trials that I have to take with me into my perspective if I'm going to have joy. I have to have, when I go through trials, a remarkable realization that trials are for a reason but they are only for a season. So, they're for a while, and I got a feeling Peter's thinking, with the grand scheme of things, of all glory, this is just a little time. It feels like it's been years, but in the grand scheme of things, church, in under Caesar Nero, 
in the grand scheme, it's just a little time. If necessary, God's going to use this. There's a purpose. They're really sad. I know. I know. Give me a hug. But, but they're various, so let's be watching for them. But, but, but why would God allow them? Oh, my word. God has worked so hard on Peter <laughs> that Peter is now anticipating your questions. If I'm going to get through trials with a remarkable joy, I need to have a remarkable realization. God is using these trials to sharpen me and refine me. I've got to know that. But when I say, but why even do it? Peter goes, I thought you were going to ask that. And so he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though by tested by fire. What? What's this word tested? This literally, I could write the word proof. Okay, I'll check that P because it looked like roof, all right? Proof, that the proof of your faith, why does our faith get tested? To prove it. You say, I'm an Eagles fan. Okay, if they're three and 10, prove it. What? I mean, I am when they're doing well. See, see it's almost like God, I want to know when the, when the church looks like it's down 30 points in the fourth quarter and has no chance of ever having a future. I want to know where your faith's at then. I want to know what your faith's like when someone in your house is going through a tremendous suffering and struggle. I want to see where your faith, it's almost like there's a proof that comes with testing. And why does this have to happen? Because it's more precious than gold. And y'all love gold, Peter's thinking. Y'all love gold, right? Y'all love money. This is far more precious than that. What are you doing here, Peter? I'm telling you, part of the goal of testing is to find out, are you a fan or are you a follower? And so he leverages the illustration of a goldsmith. Have you ever seen a goldsmith working on their craft? Peter says, you know what? Trials do to faith what fire does to gold. Young people, do you know what fire does to gold? It's awesome. If you've ever had metal shop or anything like that, there's a kiln, right? Well, well when you work on these things, one of the things you can do is you can put metal into hot, blazing fire, and it goes into liquid form. And then you see like these, these impurities rise to the top and they scoop them out to make it pure. Well, a goldsmith is working with a crucible that's a lot smaller, right? You can put tweezers around it because they're molding it into different aspects for jewelry or whatever it is. But, but, but they take this and they refine it down and they heat it. They heat it and heat it and heat it and test it and test it and make it hotter and hotter until it turns to liquid. And then the goldsmith comes to a point where he goes, there, that's the purity I'm looking for. And do you know how he discovers when it's got the right time? Like, it's time. That's it. That's where I wanted to be. You know how he discovers it? He sees his face in it. When his face is revealed in the liquid gold, he knows that is ready to be molded. And he takes it and he puts it into the mold. Now, I want you to take all of that context that you just heard of the illustration Peter leveraged and read this next verse. Peter says, your faith tested by gold may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the, you see it? Revelation of Jesus Christ. Folks, Dive underneath scripture for me. This is not a God's neat, let's eat message, okay? Our, our refining, okay, reveals Jesus Christ in us. 
It, it, it shows Christ. But, but let's go to, a, I'm getting excited. We got to go to another level of motivation to go through trials and sufferings. Peter notes three things that will come if we go through testing. Praise, glory, and honor. I don't want us to miss those because I think it's important to Peter because he could be like, praise, glory, and honor. He's just throwing out words. This is the inspired word of God. So it's like he's got an end in between because he wants you to ponder each one and kind of compartmentalize them. That, that, that when I go through testing, I might be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation. It comes from the word apocalypse or, or the idea of revealing Jesus Christ. Well, when does Jesus Christ reveal himself that also includes praise, glory, and honor? Well, there's two revelations of Jesus in scripture that are talked about. The first one is the rapture. This is where Jesus calls the church up into the air and he meets them in the air, but he does not come to the ground. That is one of his revelations, okay? We get the word rapture from the word carried away or snuck or, or caught away from the word raptoro in Latin, okay? There's a second revelation, and that's when he comes to earth and reveals himself to all mankind and every knee will bow. That's at the Mount of Olives at the end of the Armageddon battle where Jesus comes down and kind of wrecks the house in the name of his name. And that one is the glorious appearing at Mount Olives, why do I think this one's talking about the rapture? Because right after the rapture, the apostle Paul tells me that I receive rewards for what I've done on earth at something called the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. Why I think that's a reference to the revelation of Jesus Christ at the rapture is because Peter's talking to a church audience. He's talking to the audience and he's saying, you're going to be given praise, glory, and honor. Now stop for a second. Mankind was never meant to be clapped for. That's why we don't handle it well when people clap for us. <laughs> stop it. Stop it. <laughs> right? Is it, you know, it's not, you know, I, I heard C.S. Lewis, I think, when some say men should not have been clapped for. That was a bad thing we started, okay? Okay, but, but, only God, only God is worthy of praise, glory, and honor. These are things that belong only to him. It's like they're his. They're not yours. They're not mine. They're his. Satan didn't like that. Lucifer didn't like that. That praise, glory, and honor are his. And so if I get praise, glory, and honor, that means Jesus is giving me something that's his. How do I deserve that? I don't. Therefore, if Jesus got praise, glory, and honor because he suffered, that means in order for me to get praise, glory, and honor, I need to do this. You ready? I need to suffer. I need to do this. I need to share in his sufferings so that I can share in praise, glory, and honor. See, see, scripture shows us something underneath its belly. It's this. Suffering and exaltation go together, and believers are called to share in that so that they can share in the good. See, we only want the good because our gospel is, I just want the happy, but you don't get any glory, any praise, any honor, any future hope if there isn't some suffering. Why? Because you're 
living the life of Christ. And so I learn when I suffer, when I'm tested, I'm going to get rewarded. So I have a remarkable motivation. I'm going through this with remarkable motivation that this test that I'm going through is going to be rewarding. Have you ever had somebody test you and it turned out to be a good thing? You kind of needed that. You kind of needed somebody to invest into you and to believe in you even when you didn't believe in yourself. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big basketball fan, okay? I, I, I got to play the sport in college, not, not the super high levels, okay? But I enjoyed playing the game, okay? And, and I've always loved basketball. And I grew up, you know, I'm a 90s boy, right? Back in the 1900s, right? I grew up, and, and Michael Jordan was all over my television, and he went to the Tar Heels, so I became a North Carolina Tar Heel fan, and I followed them. And I remember not many years ago, they got a recruit who was this huge guy, big guy, awesome basketball player. But you could tell looking at him like, man, he needs to be refined. He needs to take a little step in his fitness. But he must be amazing, because any young guys out there who play basketball, he was a McDonald's All-American. I mean, we got some great basketball players in Bucks County. Not too many come out of here as McDonald's are Americans. I think you got to go back to Kobe Bryant at Upper Merriam, right? So, I mean, this is like an elite athlete, but you can tell he needs to make some commitments in fitness, especially if he's going to play at that level. And what's on top of that? If you know basketball, you know the Tar Heels have a philosophy, and that is run, run, run. Tar Heels play an up-tempo game. And this is a big guy. And Roy Williams, the Hall of Fame coach, recruits him and says, we're going to turn you into something. But it's going to take some testing. At North Carolina, they do something called a 12-minute mile run. A 12-minute run, excuse me. Where you have to run for 12 minutes. You can't stop. If I asked everybody in the church, stand up, we're going to do an illustration. We're going to go outside, we're all going to run for 12 minutes. How many of you are not feeling good about that? Right? Some of the young people are like, let's go. Some of you are going, I'm barely going to get to that door. Let a Rome run for 12 minutes. Now let me add that I'm going to bring in Hall of Fame coach Roy Williams with a whistle going, let's go. If you stop running, you got to start over. And that young man fought. And that young man went through all their diet restrictions. That young man went through all their stuff and they said they couldn't break him. And he just kept fighting and fighting because North Carolina wanted to turn him into their brand. They wanted to turn him into a champion. They wanted to win a championship with him. And doggone it, this young guy fought for four years and this is what he looked like the year he graduated from the national championship at North Carolina. (laughs) Refined into a basketball player that North Carolina goes, that's who we are. And do you think he's sad about what they did? Do you think he's, how dare you do that to me? No, he got to experience what it was like to be a champion. He knew that the testing, although for a little while, that it was grieving, that, that, that it, was, it was necessary. And it was a lot of different things. There were various things he had to do. But in the end, it resulted in praise. You believe in this Jesus who will be revealed again. And Peter goes, that's so awesome. It's going to work out. He's going to refine you. He's going to use you. And what's so great is that you believe him. Even though you haven't seen him, you love him. Look what he says. Even though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. 
How many people, how many people have you heard say, I don't know how you guys believe in something you haven't seen. I mean, you haven't seen Jesus. People will come up to the great evangelist, Billy Graham, and they say, how can you believe in something you can't see? I mean, that's crazy. That's weird. And Billy Graham would come back as only he can. He'd say, do you believe in the wind? Um, yeah. Why do you believe in the wind? You can't see the wind. You can see the effects of the wind. You can't see the wind. There's a mystery to it. You see the trees blow. You see the grass move, but you don't see the wind. And what he's doing is he's saying, you believe in things you don't see. You have a great-great-grandfather. I'm not so sure. I haven't seen him. You know he exists because you see the effects of him. You've heard the accounts of him. And the more verified the accounts of him, the more you believe in him. We all believe in things we haven't seen. And that's a big deal to Peter. Because Peter remembered Jesus walking up to the disciples and say, because you've seen me, you believe. And then he said, blessed are they who do not see and believe. You know what Jesus says to all of us sitting here in 2021? Blessed are you. You believe in me and you haven't seen me. And, and what's so awesome, go back one slide. I get excited about this. This word love, this word love, it's written in what's called indicative form. That's a big word to say this. It's a commendation. It's like Peter's going, though you not seen him, you love him. Awesome, guys. That's great. Though you do not see him, you believe in him. You're doing a good thing. See, Billy Graham, I love how he added that to his apologetic, and I call that apologetic, because he's not telling them, um, um, you're, you're wrong. He's just putting a little pebble in their shoe. That's kind of true. I do kind of believe in things I don't see. I was kind of standing on that argument, and now i got to really think about that. See, one of the things you have to understand about apologetics and defending your faith, you don't have to win them. That's not the goal. It's just to sow the seed. And so sometimes the greatest thing an apologist can do is just to get them to think about their worldview a little bit more. Before someone's going to accept your worldview, they have to start doubting their own worldview. Sometimes some of the things we say, like, well, you believe in the wind, don't you? You believe in things you don't see. It just puts a pebble in their shoe to get them thinking. And you've done your job. You believe, Peter says, and you rejoice. And you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. It's almost like I'm trying to think of the words that would describe the joy I have. No, I can't come up with something. Because it's filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's big. Souls here carries the idea of mind, body, spirit. Why is that important? Because the people that Peter's writing to are watching people die under Nero. They're watching them be murdered. And Peter's saying, yes, this is horrible suffering. But there is glorification coming. You will one day see the glorification that's coming. So he's encouraging them with that. There's a salvation that's coming your way that will take you to glory. And, and we get to do something if you're still with me, I th I'm throwing a lot at you. We get to do something today. Peter kind of muses on something, okay? So if you just love scripture and you love the, the more philosophical thoughts of scripture, Peter is about to muse on scripture. He says this, concerning that salvation that I just wrote about, the prophets who prophesied about the grace 
What's that? Undeserved favor that was to be yours. Who's he writing to? To the church age. They searched and inquired carefully. What? Yeah, they saw this grace that was coming to, this, to these people. You, the church in 1 Peter that he's writing to. They saw about the grace you were going to get, and they, and they inquired about it. They had questions. They were searching. It's like they didn't fully understand it. How suffering has something to do with glory. They were looking at it, and they were inquiring. And Peter goes, he's thinking about it some more. He said this. They inquired what person or time the spirit of Christ in them, as they're being God-breathed scripture, as they're writing it, was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The prophets are like, what is it that we're writing? See, we see there is suffering and then there's glory. Now, 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 some scholars have said as if prophets had a different perspective of scripture than you and I do because they're writing from centuries past and times long before Christ walked the earth. But they saw two mountaintops that they talked about. One mountaintop they saw was Mount Calvary. And we can read into Isaiah of accounts of the crucifixion that they saw coming that hadn't happened yet. They wrote about his sufferings, but, but they saw only the mountaintops and the other mountaintop they saw was the Mount of Olives, his glories. So these prophets, they were looking at this and they saw Mount Calvary and they saw the Mount of Olives, Psalm 2, Mount of Olives, Psalm Isaiah 53, Calvary. And they began to think, oh my word, in God's grand plan, Suffering precedes exaltation. Suffering has to occur so glories can occur. But, but what's this gap? They didn't see it. It's as if this mountaintop was only showing that. What's this gap? What, what's this gap? There was a mystery. It was like a big question mark. What is the gap? And, and Paul comes in and writes in the book of Ephesians, and many of you read this. He goes, I want to tell you about a mystery. Here's the mystery. The church. The church age is the mystery. That is this valley that the prophets didn't see. And they're like, there's something where there's this suffering and there's this glory. And they're inquiring into it. And they were searching into it. And they, re- and they, began to, they came up with a revelation. They began to realize this. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves. See, they thought, I'm writing for first century BC, right? No. We're actually writing for the next generation. So we're not serving ourselves, but the people who are going to need our prophecies in the future to verify what's happened in the past. Who's staying with me? And so in the things that have now been announced to you, you have lots of prophecy, lots of scripture. They realize that those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, these are things that are so massive, so awesome that Gabriel and Archangel Michael are like, hey, hey, wait, 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 let me, let me see that. Let me see this first Peter. What? You mean to tell me? See, see, I remember the day. These angels are thinking, I remember the day Lucifer fell. A third of the angels went, and they can't get redeemed again. They're not these redeemable. You're telling me these human beings, they, they can sin and fail, and God forgives them? You're telling me they can suffer and be exalted the way Jesus was? That, that is interesting. Angels long to look into your salvation. 
Why? Because there's this remarkable expectation in heaven and what should be in our hearts that one day I'm getting glorified. Sufferings have a result. I'm going to get praise and honor and glory that I don't deserve. And the prophets are like, yeah, we're seeing that. But we're not fully getting that. And that's where prophecy is so awesome. When you pick up the prophetic books of the Old Testament, it, it, you know what I call them? I'm going to date myself. There's this awesome movie, and I don't know if it was awesome because you know like, I wasn't in a good spiritual state all the time in my life, so it might have been actually a bad movie, so I'm not suggesting it. <laughs> but it was an awesome movie. I love to watch it. It was called Back to the Future. Ah, oh, come on. And it had a car that I wanted bad, right? It was like before Teslas were cool, right? I mean, I mean, and I wanted a DeLorean. You know what prophecy is? They're a DeLorean. The prophetic books are like a DeLorean. You get to read those prophetic books. You go back into the past so that you can hear the future. You know, in your hands at home, you might have four or five copies. You have prophetic texts preparing you for what's to come. Peter's like, it's awesome, isn't it? And we're like, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty, yeah, I think so. Peter's like, it's like I'm jumping up and down. Yeah, I, I, I'm trying. Prophecy brings apologetics into our world. They're messages from God, spoken and written by prophets, foretelling future events that they had to tell with 100% accuracy, or guess what they had to happen to them? They were killed. They needed to have these done. And we have prophetic texts in our book that are like DeLorean accounts. One is this. Long before, long before Christ, 740 B.C., there was a scroll written called Isaiah. Do you know what B.C. means, young people? Before Christ. Yeah, this world who goes, I don't know if I believe in Jesus. Their entire calendar system's built around Jesus. Just don't tell them, right? When they write 2021, you're acknowledging Jesus. Okay, because that's 2021 AD, after death. Oh, death of who? Jesus. This whole world operates off of Jesus, okay? There was a star prophecy, right? There was a star prophecy, and, and, and they wrote this 740 years before Christ. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. There's a great light coming. Those who dwelt in the land of the darkness, on them a light has shone. And for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And when Isaiah wrote that, that would be called, it's a big word called textual criticism, that would be called a first level document. It would be an autograph. Young people, if you went to a football game and you got one of the players to sign the helmet, that's an autograph. If your dad also signs it, that's not an autograph. <laughs> Old Testament autographs were run from 1500 BC to 500 BC. Obviously, so long ago, we don't have any autographs. So what do we have? We have the next level. It's called hand copies. This is when the autograph from Isaiah, during these years, far before Christ, thousands of years ago, they were writing down what Isaiah said, and they would transcribe it. Okay, for unto us, for unto us, a child is born. And sometimes the transcribal errors, and people say, there's errors in the Bible, okay? There are transcriptional issues at times because it's like, for unto us, a child is born. For unto us, child is born. Ah, mistake! It was a transcribal issue. How did they correct those? They would take multiple hand copies and compare them together. 
And then a process began into the 1600s where they took these multiple copies to the third level and these are the critical texts. So if you were ever like hearing about the Septuagint or you've heard about like the Greek text or the majority text, these are different translations that have been derived from the hand copies. That's the third level of textual criticism. You say, what's in my hand right now? Well, it's, it's a journal, so don't, don't you have translations put in English, Chinese, different things that come from the critical texts. And so you have some translations that only use these critical texts. And they say, these are the only critical texts we should listen to and anybody who listens to these. It gets ugly, okay? There are some that go, we work with the majority of the critical texts. So we take as many critical texts as we can, we put it together and we develop our translation. And so you have ESV, NASB, KJV, you have all these translations that are coming from the critical texts. And many people have said, what if this critical text level is wrong? It'd be nice if we had something from the hand copies to compare and see if these translations that have come down to us today are accurate. And in 1947, a little boy was walking around these caves, throwing rocks in them in Qumran. And he heard, <gasps> so a jar had broke. Archaeologists went in and found something that's called today the Dead Sea Scrolls. These same settlement that were transcribers who did hand copies that date as far back as 150 years before Christ had hid manuscripts in the caves that now have been preserved for almost 2,000 years. And one of the scrolls in cave one was the Isaiah scroll. And the Isaiah scroll is now in the shrine of the book in Jerusalem. It's a scroll that dates some 125 years, 150 years before Christ. It's a document that if you'd like, if you don't believe in the Bible, you say, I don't believe in the Bible, I don't believe in Isaiah, it's a part of this canon thing, okay? Just take that document. We have a scroll that dates 100 and some 50 years before Christ that predicts his crucifixion. Whether you want to put it in the Bible or not, there is a scroll you can go read that dates prior to Christ's life and says this, a man of sorrows and acquainted of grief and as one from whom men hid their faces was despised. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Folks, put this in your apologetic file. When someone says you believe a bunch of myths, in 1947, 2,000-year-old prophetic manuscripts were discovered in Qumran dating 150 years prior to Jesus' time on earth that predict his life, death, and resurrection. Why is that important? Go back to my two mountains. If they got Mount Calvary right, they're going to get the Mount of Olives right too. And scripture has prophetic writing about what's about to come. You see, in this church age, in this church age, it's working towards that Mount Olives, that moment at the end of Armageddon. Somewhere in here, the church is raptured. I'd like to think we're around here. I'm ready to go. I don't know about you. 
But if they predicted these things, they're going to be able to predict your future as well. And you go back into scripture to read about what's coming. And scripture is pretty clear. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. One day, you'll be driving maybe 5th Street and... And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. There's the word, caught up, rapturoed, together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, terrify everybody with these words. No. Horrify them. No. Get as much clickbait as you can. No. Encourage one another with these words. The rapture is called your blessed hope not your blessed torment. It's a hope. There's a return. The Lord himself will descend. There's a removal. Those who are alive are caught up. There's a reunion to meet the Lord in the air. And there's a reassurance that he's taken us out. Why do I need reassurance? Because it becomes very clear. Scripture is very clear that there is a tribulation time coming to earth. In Revelation chapter 4 through 19, it talks about this time of tribulation. Three and a half years of peace where everyone will fall underneath the leader that is called the Antichrist. A cashless society is introduced. All wealth comes through him. He controls people after three and a half years with the mark of the beast. It's only occurring in the tribulation. It is not something you'll be tricked on. You will have to take it or not. He demands people follow him. He leads the armies from around the world and God begins to pour out trumpets, bowls, and wrath upon sin for not turning to him. The time had come and during this tribulation spoken of in Revelation, it says men will seek to die and can't. It's a horrifying time, but I'm not worried about it because I'm going up in the blessed hope. You say, how can you be so sure? Oh, I base, I base everything on re. You know I'm weird. The scripture tells me, 1 Corinthians 1, 7, he's going to return at any moment. There's an imminent return. That means nothing has to happen before he comes. He can come at any moment. I believe in a rapture because I believe in the imminent return of Christ. That must be explained to me if I'm going to believe something else. I believe in a removal of the church in Revelation. Explain to me why in Revelations chapter 1 through 3, talk about the church, the church, the church. And in chapters 20 and 21, the church, the church, the church. Where is it in 4 through 19? Well, what's John talking about in chapters 4 through 19? The tribulation. Why is it not there? I need somebody to explain that to me if I'm going to take a literal historical interpretation of Revelation. How about the reunion before the time of wrath? Revelation 3 tells me, as well as other passages in Titus, that there's an exemption for wrath. I, I want to look at that and go, how does that happen if I'm in the wrath? And then on top of that, I'm told the rapture's my blessed hope. How is it a hope if I'm going to suffer like crazy? And where do you get a God who likes to punish his kids? He punishes sin. He disciplines his kids and grows his kids. And so I need some of those things explained to me if I don't see that. Because at the end of this tribulation, all oh, the army of Christ, he gathers his armies at the Mount of Round the at the Valley of Megiddo. Right? And, and, and you see this. Go ahead and put Armageddon up. And, and this whole battle ensues, and they come around Israel. And maybe, maybe you don't believe in church stuff, but explain to me why this little Israel is so important in our world if the God Bible isn't true. How is something the size of New Jersey that important? 
We aren't like, we got to protect New Jersey. Nobody's like that. Why is Israel so important? I mean, just zoom out for a minute. Why is this little thing so important? Because this is where it all goes down. And the Antichrist gathers everybody around, armies from the north, the south, and in CC movies, they try to make it like the devil is against Jesus in this big MMA fight on Saturday night, you know? And they're like staring at each other in the way in, okay? This is how Armageddon goes if you read the scriptures. The Antichrist gathers them all around. There's this huge, they're about to take Jerusalem. And then God comes down and goes, okay, so here's what we're going to do. That is like, I mean, he, God's not in heaven like, you think we'll win? I mean, we better get more prepared. God's like, like when I say it's done, it's done. I'm not like, oh no. And, and see, the devil wants to trick us believers to be all like, <laughs> and, and wait, we you know why? Because revelation is not to terrify you. It's to reveal something. What? Jesus wins. Amen. And when the time gets closer, the devil gets more scared. And the scriptures say you will see as the times grow closer, more pestilence, which is disease. You'll see more wars and rumors of wars. There'll be a a culture that disrespects parents. You'll see gender confusion at all time levels. You'll see mockery of all things of God as the times draw near. But rejoice. Because if you share in his sufferings, you will share in his exaltation. That's what brings remarkable joy. Remarkable joy is based on these three things, church. Trials have a reason. And when you find the reason, it leads to praise. You have a different perspective. You view it from the mountaintops. Trials and struggle and testing, you have a motivation. It'll result in honor. So you have a remarkable joy. It's going to work out for my honor. Trials have an expectation. These sufferings have a result. One day I'll be in glory. As we conclude today, I want you to ponder a factory with a Steinway piano. When they built these Steinway pianos, they go through all sorts of struggle. They bend over 18 layers in the exact Steinway design so that it has a tone like none other. And they put it under pressure for a little while. It's necessary if you want the tone. And man, it's distressing to the wood. But after they go through that time of realization that they have to do these things, the next part of the Steinway process comes. They test it. It's called a pounding room. They literally pound on the keys 10,000 times. I'm sitting there going, they use a machine. But over 200 craftsmen have an individual craft that they have experienced because Steinway wants it handcrafted. So there is a craftsman at the Steinway factory that just makes the hammers and he crafts them. He's been there for 30 some years crafting those. (laughs) And there's a realization, there's a motivation that they know that if they test this piano, it's gonna be right. This week, church, when you go through testing, you might get tested in small things this week. That's beneath me, is it? You may get tested of authority. You're gonna have to listen to something you don't. You might get the test of integrity. Are you gonna do that right or are you gonna cheat? You might get the test of offense. Somebody offends you and it's gonna see if you can forgive them. Maybe the test of time. This is, I don't have time for this. Or even the test of perseverance we saw 
and Gary Miracle. But when you get pounded on and pounded on, you know, you know there's a motivation. I'm going to get rewarded for that. And one day, I'm going to get glorified, and I'm going to be in that concert hall. And after the Steinway lacquer that is put on with perfection, there's an expectation that, yes, that piano went through tremendous suffering. It went through tremendous testing. But in the end, it resonates through that concert hall like nothing else. When a believer begins to see suffering as a preparation for what's coming, when a believer understands that Jesus lets you share in it so you could share in it, you do remarkable things. And you take your prosthetic legs and you go on races. When you choose to rejoice even when you suffer, Despite reasons, rewards, and results you have yet to discover, you know what that is? It's remarkable. Heavenly Father, whatever anyone's going on in this room today, I pray that they would see that whatever trial, test, or suffering that that has been allowed into their life, those things Peter said specifically that they didn't deserve, They didn't have it coming to them. It's because they live in a sin-cursed earth. There's a great God that takes those sufferings and uses them so that he can make us reflect Jesus Christ. And the fire sometimes gets hot, but in those times we pray his face gets even clearer. The trials sometimes feel like forever, but we're reminded they're just for a time. And those sufferings, they can feel like they'll last forever. But when we go up on the mountaintop and see perspective, we see that every time we suffer, we can almost smile and say, wow, God's going to use this big time. He's going to reward me for this one day. And no matter how bad this is, no matter what, it will one day be over. Thank you, Lord, for this truth. Thank you, Lord, for this perspective. May it help us be remarkable.